just joining us, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Exodus. And this morning we're in Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. If you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 55. Week in, week out, as we're looking at the book of Exodus, we're, we're talking about this theme, that God is a God who sets his people free. This book, above all, is a story of God setting his people free. And so we're going to turn back to that theme this morning. Uh, before we read our text this morning, please please pray with me. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is your word to us, and so we pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word. We pray that you would do your good work of using it for our encouragement and our challenge and for our change, for your honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be reading uh, chapter 13, verse 17 through the end of chapter 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up uh, out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them and by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Heroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army. He overtook them and camped by the sea, by, by Pi-Hahiroth in, in front of Baal-Zephon. Then Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians, 
They shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved out from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and his horsemen. All the host of Pharaoh that followed him into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them to their right and to their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of the Lord given for us. If you're with us last week, we talked about Passover. We talked about this incredible final judgment that God brings on the people of Egypt uh, in order to set his people free. This was the last of the ten plagues. It's a final straw when all the firstborn of Egypt are struck down, but God preserves and saves all the firstborn of, of Israel. And it's the last straw for Pharaoh. Finally, he says, just get out, go. And he sends the people out in this incredible act of redemption, of salvation. And here we see the second stage of that as God finally and ultimately carries them out of Egypt and in fact destroys all the armies of Egypt in their wake. So it is a, a part of this same incredible movement of God's grace to free his people. He's in the middle of redeeming them. Okay, This is a rightly uh, famous passage. Okay, you know, Everyone you know knows about God parting the Red Sea. It's an incredible picture of his power and his might. But one of the things that strikes me in this passage is that in the very midst of all of this incredible activity of God, God's people are frightened. They're terrified. They're scared. They're caught in the grips of fear right in the midst of God's great action and care on their behalf. And it's a reminder to us, I think, that fear is powerful. It's a powerful force in our lives, isn't it? I mean, it's not simply an, an, an emotion like many of our other emotions. It's one that, that we experience with our, our, our bodies and our whole lives. I mean, you, you know, when, when you're under immediate threat, they talk about the fight or flight syndrome. You get the sudden rush of adrenaline, and, and maybe depending on your personality or the situation, you either strike back and fight or you turn around and hightail it and, and run. 
Or, or maybe like me, you've had those moments of terror too where there's a third reaction and it just feels like all the energy just gets seeped out of your body and you're walking jello and what are you going to do? Uh, you know what it's like to feel afraid and not just afraid in moments of sudden danger like this. But you know what fear feels like over the long haul in the form of worry and anxiety and stress. We are people who are surrounded by fears, fears we sometimes can't seem to shake. Proverbs 12:25 says this, an anxious heart weighs a man down. Our passage this morning, again, in the midst of great salvation, is God's people captured by fear, wrestling with fear. This passage of Exodus has something to say to us about fear. So what is it? We're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see the pervasiveness of fear. And we're going to see the response of fear. And then we're going to see something about how to find real, real freedom from fear. So first, the pervasiveness of fear. Uh, the Israelites' fears. When this passage opens up, they are a people in triumph. God has just set them free. 430 years of slavery now are at an end as God miraculously delivers his people and he sends them out. One of the last things that happens before they leave Egypt is uh, the Israelites go to their neighbors and their neighbors g give them gifts of clothes and of gold and of jewelry. I mean, they effectively plunder the Egyptians. And they go out triumphantly. This is what you see in uh, verse 8 of chapter 14. It describes their going out. It says they go out defiantly. Literally in the Hebrew, it's with a high hand. It's in power, in strength. This is how they're leaving Egypt. But then here's the catch. I mean, unbelievably, after all of these incredible plagues come in and wipe out the economic power of Egypt and ultimately wipe out the firstborn sons, what happens next? Pharaoh looks around and says, what have we done? There goes our slave labor force. What have we done? And so Pharaoh, forgetting all the lessons he's just learned about the mighty hand of God, who's told him to let his people go, gathers his army and comes chasing after Israel. And they find themselves, as they're going through the wilderness, suddenly up against uh, the sea on one end. And they turn around and they see Pharaoh's incredible army closing in on the other. And how do they respond? How would we respond? Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared, they feared greatly. They were terrified. Here comes death staring us in the face. Suddenly, uh, they feel like they've made this huge tactical blunder. All the joy of their deliverance and freedom suddenly snuffed out in an instant. All it took was one glance at Pharaoh and his army, and suddenly uh, fear falls like this suffocating blanket over them, choking out the light and the hope and their new identity as God's freed people. Here comes Pharaoh, and here comes the fear. Because there are people caught in fear. What about our own fears? Okay, because we live in a world, honestly, where there's much to fear. I found a website this week called The Phobia List. And it has a list of over 500 uh, named phobias that were culled from medical journals. And I didn't make it past the A list, a, you know, letter A. Uh, but here's what I found among the A's. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you not the Latin names, but uh, the translations. Fear of flying, fear of cats, fear of imperfection, fear of failure, fear of people, fear of heights, fear of infinity, uh, anuptophobia, fear of remaining single. Uh, 
one of my personal favorites, Anglophobia, fear of England or English culture. <laughs> and one I won't try to pronounce that is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> okay, again, this is, we didn't get past letter A. Um, what about our own fears? I, I, I think about, in my own life, about things that I've been afraid of. One of my most vivid and early memories was at, at age four, I, I was, uh, one of my heroes was Batman. But, but at, at the same time of, of, of loving Batman, I was terrified of bats. And I remember one night when my door cracked and the light coming through, I remember this six-foot bat walking into my room and jumping on me. I screamed, my parents come running in, and, and there I am tangled up in my Batman sleeping bag and <laughs> telling them it, it, it really happened. And maybe you've had dreams like that. For, for our kids, for a number of weeks, it was spiders they were afraid of. For one of our children, inexplicably, for about three nights, every time we put them bed and turned off the light. He was, he, was, he was scared of donkeys coming through his room. I don't, I don't know where <laughs> that came from. Um, just a couple years after my, my Batman scare, I remember uh, the feeling of being lost in a department store where I was not tall enough to see over the clothes racks and suddenly my mother was gone and I was terrified. Or later in um, childhood, I remember a visit on a school trip, uh, I think it was, to, to a wave pool. Have you ever been to the wave pool? when you're small, and I remember this, this feeling of being crushed by the waves and feeling like I just barely made it to the ladder before it was all over. Or maybe fears as adults. I mean, I can think of a, at least one solitary walk through a dark wood where I could feel the fear of the unknown just bearing down on me. Or I can remember solitary walks after dark through city streets where I could feel the fear bearing down on me. Or that feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach when uh, your spouse doesn't arrive home on time or your child doesn't arrive home on time and you can't get in touch with them and your mind starts thinking of all the many things that could have potentially happened. Or even worse, the fears that come not from physical safety but maybe from threatened relationships. The Times thought something like this, have I done irreparable damage this time? Have I destroyed this relationship? Where are your fears? Financial provision? What's going to happen in the middle of economic downturn? How's it going to affect my retirement? How are you going to keep providing for your children? How are you going to cover all your bills with food prices climbing? Or relational fears. Will I ever get married? Will anyone really love me the way I want to be loved back? Will this person keep loving me? Will my marriage ever get any better? Will my spouse leave me? Will my friends betray me? Or for your children, will they get sucked into the wrong crowd at school? Will they do well in school? Will they make the right choices? Will they turn out all right? Maybe it's fears for your education or your career. Will I pass this class? Will I graduate? Will I get the promotion I want? Is my job secure? Will it still be here in six months? Or fears of physical assault or robbery? Or fears of terrorism? What do you fear? What does your spouse fear? What do your kids fear? Maybe here's a conversa conversation starter for lunch today. Make your own mental list of the things you fear, and then ask your spouse, what do you think I fear? And I'll bet their list might be longer than yours, and maybe, maybe more telling. Because our fear, is, it's a powerful fuel in our lives. It's like putting you know, high-octane gas in our tanks, or it's like giving too many brownies to your toddler, or too many cups of Starbucks before lunch. You, you, you know what our fear does to us? It drives us. It rattles us. 
It makes us edgy. We end up feeling exhausted and oppressed. Okay. The reality of fear. We see it here in this passage and we see it in our lives. Second thing. What about the response of fear? Look how the Israelites respond. This is verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How do the Israelites respond? They do three things. First, they pray, right? It says they cry out to the Lord. Or at least they make a show of prayer. Is it a real prayer? Is there real faith at work here? What kind of prayer is it? Well, one way to tell, is your prayer a real prayer? What changes after the prayer? What's new about their attitude? How does it take a different direction, or does it? They pray, they cry out to the Lord. And what's the next thing they do? They're immediately pointing fingers at Moses. This incredibly sarcastic response to him. Is it because there was no place to bury us in Egypt that you brought us out here to kill us? Is that why we're here? Is that why you led us out here, Moses? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? They go on and say, isn't this what we said to you? Leave us alone so that we might serve the Egyptians? Well, if you've, been bringing, uh, if you've been reading along in Exodus, this might sound like a strange quote because the truth is it's nowhere in Exodus. That's not how Moses' initial interaction with the Israelites go. What are they doing? They're re- remembering wrongly their past. Historical revision going on right here. Blame shifting. And they go on, and what do they do next? They romanticize their captivity. It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to be here in the situation we're in. Why do we even leave to begin with? Because they're forgetting their true condition. Back in Exodus 1, it says this, The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Or Exodus 2, During those days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. But now here they are saying, you know, it really wasn't so bad. Egypt wasn't such a bad deal. What's going on? Well, what we see them doing is they are interpreting their experience. And we all do this. Life does not simply happen to us, but we are meaning makers. We try to make sense of our experience. And we assign values and priorities to the things that happen to us. We interpret life as it comes to us. And when we fear, we're looking at the situations of our lives and assigning a particular meaning to them. Now, the Israelites look out and they see Pharaoh in this incredible army. And he most certainly is a potential threat to them. But the question for the Israelites and the question for us is, what are we going to do when we're exposed to something in life that might really be a threat to us? How are we going to interpret our experience? How are we going to respond? All right, let me give you one example here of what the Israelites could have done just to make the point. You know, the Israelites here are consumed with fear for the Egyptian. For the Egyptians, yet they have just seen over the number of, uh, number of possibly months God striking down the Egyptians with this series of ten plagues. They've seen him working miraculously to humble Egypt and lift them up, to bring them out of slavery, 430 years of slavery, into freedom. They have been eyewitnesses to all of this. They've just gone through it. How else could they have 
interpreted Pharaoh's presence as he shows up at the seashore, um, they could have said something like this. Here comes Pharaoh. Can you believe the nerve of that guy? I wonder, God how, I wonder how God's going to deliver us this time. And that might have been truer to their experience up until now. Because not once have they had to lift a finger to deliver themselves, but God has been bringing it to them step after step after step. Now, you are a meaning maker, too, and I'm a meaning maker also. How do we handle our own fears? Do we do what the Israelites do? Remember the first thing. Make a show of a prayer. Maybe that is our first response to pray, but in that prayer, is there any real faith, any real trust, any real sense of expectation that God might actually show up? And after we pray... Is anything different in our own approach to what's going on? Or is it as if we have not prayed at all? Because do we do what they did next? Do we point fingers? Do we blame shift? Are we caught in our tunnel vision over the enormity of what we think our uh, situation really is? Or do we do what they do next? Run back to captivity? Or maybe run to a new captivity? Do you deny your fear? Do you simply pretend it's not there? Stuff it down deep? Or do you medicate it? Drink a little too much. Eat a little too much. Shop a little too much. Watch TV a little too much. Surf the internet a little too much. Tell a few little white lies just to cover yourself and protect yourself. Where do you go with your fears? What are you looking to for relief from your fears? And let me ask you this. That thing you're looking to, how's it working for you? Is that bringing the relief of fear, the care in the middle of it, and the freedom from it that we so desperately need? Because fear does ugly things to us. It leaves us with the question, how are we going to find real freedom from our fear? Third point, freedom from our fear. Let me just suggest this, this observation about our fear. Fear is a preoccupation with, a fixing our eyes on the wrong thing. Fixing our eyes on the wrong thing. Because the fear that pervades our lives is a result of gazing at, staring at our circumstances rather than our Savior. And I think that's what we're going to see here with the Israelites. Fear grabs our hearts and our, when our attention is more drawn by whatever threatens us than our attention is drawn to Jesus, the one who holds on to us in the middle of our threats. So how does the gospel teach us to look to Jesus over everything else. Well, it tells us two things here in this passage. Don't fear and do fear. Don't fear and do fear. Verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses' first words from God to the people are these. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And this is actually the most repeated do not command in all of Scripture. Hundreds of times God says to his people, do not fear. Because he knows that we're a people so prone to get caught in our fears. Here Moses tells the people to stand back and watch God's deliverance. He says, you will not even have to lift a finger. Now later, certainly throughout Scripture, and even later in the book of Exodus, we're going to see this is not the way God always acts. Sometimes he says, like here, trust me, don't even lift a finger and watch what I'm going to do. Later he's going to say, trust me and pick up your sword, we're going to war. 
God works differently in different places. But here, he's trying to uh, make a point to them. He's trying to uh, show them again that God's presence is the foundational truth for his people. And so to show them that, he gives them a role that is overtly passive here in this particular instance. Stand still, be quiet, and watch because I am here and I am at work. The Lord is present. Did you catch back in chapter 13 the description of that presence? This is in verses 21 and 22. He talks about God's presence moving with God's people in the form of this visible cloud during the day and this pillar of fire at night. So the Israelites look out day or night and they see God's presence represented in front of them every single day. Don't you look at that and think, you know, if there was a cloud of, you know, going in front of me every day or this fire in my room in the middle of the night, I think I'd remember that God was there. I think I could trust. But they don't. They don't, and so often we don't either. But he's trying to show them that he is present. Because we know that for us, we have God's presence made even more sure. Who do we have? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God in the flesh, who comes to be present with us. And what does Jesus tell his disciples after the resurrection and before his ascension? He says, I am leaving you my Holy Spirit who is in you. I'm as close as close can be. They look and see the fire and the cloud. What do we look to see? We look to see Jesus. We know that God's presence is with us here as well. But not only is he present, he's also in control. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 19 through 20, again to this cloud and this fire. Notice what happens when they are threatened. Okay, This cloud that has been going in front of the people of Israel moves and it says the Lord moves and the cloud moves to to take up a position behind them between the people of Israel and the army of Egypt. And over the course of the night as God divides the sea and makes a way forward for his people, that cloud and that fire stays there keeping the Egyptians from overtaking the Israelites. God is saying not only am I here, I am in control and I am at work for your good. Now, as we know from looking at Exodus and all of Scripture, God doesn't promise to deliver us from every difficult or dangerous thing that happens in our lives. But he does remind us again and again that we are ultimately safe in the hands of God. That that is the ultimate reality in our life. And he is going to make good on those promises. We're reminded in the gospel that Jesus has broken the back of our true enemy. Here's what Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, talking about us, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because isn't this what our fears point to? Big ones and small ones, in some degree or another, this represents death for me, literal or metaphorical. I am going to be destroyed by this. What does scripture tell us? Because of Jesus, death no longer has a hold on us. It is no longer the end of the story. It is no longer the last line for us. Let me give us an illustration to hopefully try to grab hold of this a little bit. When I was in college uh, with a group of friends, uh, we, I, we would go rappelling uh, fairly often. And uh, 
if, if, if you've ever gone rock climbing or repelling, you know, as, as we would repel, we'd go, say, to a state park, and, and we'd, we'd go up to the edge of the cliff, and b before you get ready to, to go repelling, you, you, you got to kind of edge up to the cliff and look around and try to figure out where you're going to go down, and that, that's always that slightly terrifying thing as you're looking down on, you know, 100 feet of cliff, and so then you back away, and then you go find uh, a place to tie your rope. You tie it onto a you tie it onto a rock, you tie it onto a tree, and you, and you drop it over the edge. And then you clip yourself in. And then you do this uh, r ridiculous thing. You, you go and you put your back to the cliff, and you, and you back up until you're off the cliff, and you lower yourself down until you're kind of in this L shape, and then you start rappelling down the cliff. Now, here's the thing from, from my own experience. I'm always scared when I go up to that cliff and look over there to try to figure out where we're going to go down. But as soon as we tie that rope on, and as soon as I'm clipped in, I know that I'm safe. And I'll go over to the edge and I'll lower myself down. I don't even think twice about it because I know that I'm being held by something stronger than I am. Now, that's what repelling is. If you've ever been rock climbing, and I have, and I'm terrible at it. That's why I don't do it very often. When you're rock climbing, and you've, got, you've also got a rope tied to you. As, you. as you're making your way up the cliff, you know that if, if anything ever happens, if something seriously goes wrong and you fall, you know that there's a rope there in that sort of extreme situation that's going to catch you. Okay? And many of us really look to Jesus this way. I know out there somewhere I've got this safety line tied, and if things ever get bad enough and I really fall, he's going to be there to catch me. Because we think that life is, is rock climbing. It's difficult, arduous, takes a lot of strength, takes a lot of skill, but take some heart. If you really fall, Jesus is there to catch you. But following Jesus is not like rock climbing, it's like rappelling. Because when you rappel, you know the, ro the rope is not simply there to catch you if you need it. You are utterly dependent on the rope the entire time. It is the only thing that's keeping you from falling to the bottom of the cliff. And what God tells us here is, that he is present, and he is in control, and he is powerful, and we are leaning into, resting in that rope all the time. That is what is true of us. So he begins by saying, don't fear, do not fear. But the second thing, just briefly, the last thing he says to us in this passage is do fear. Look at verse 31, the very end of this passage. We find the Israelites again in fear, but a different kind of fear. Here's what it said. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They've been taken from one kind of fear to an entirely different kind of fear. A fear that was crippling them, that had them fixated on their situation so that they lost sight of God. A fear in which they prayed false prayers and threw accusations, longed for their old slavery, but delivered now through the presence and the power of God, to a new kind of fear. When they look to the Lord and they say, we fear you, we hold ourselves in awe, in reverence, in respect of you. Pharaoh is not the thing that looms largest in our eyes anymore, Lord. It is you. And so we fear you, we trust you, we rest in you, for you are our God. And this is a lesson they're beginning to learn they're being, as they are being rescued from fear and finding rest in a God who is graciously taking care of them. Let's pray. Father, we do confess, if we're honest, that we are so often 
fearful people. We pray, Father, that you would make those fears known to us, that we'd be conscious of them, that we'd own up to them, that we might see that they are not the most powerful thing in our lives, but that behind and above them all, you stand in your powerful presence, holding us. Would you awaken us to that reality more and more? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.